If you consider your APR a marketing tool, you're dead in the water. Like that is not the business that you're actually in. We're going to gather all of these customers by offering this unsustainably high APR, and then we're going to figure out later how to deliver it. And, and that doesn't work. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using to buy Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Jan, Brady, and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference alongside Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge, which I cannot wait to see as I am a gamer from the 80s. They are inviting all the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space, to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption, mining, and to lightning. Swan are also offering a massive 20% discount to this amazing event to listeners of my show, so just head over to pacificbitcoin.la and use the code PETER at the checkout. That is pacificbitcoin.la, P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la, and use the code PETER. Next up, we have Ledger, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, and with its larger screen, it makes it easier for you to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. Now, the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And you know what? I've been a customer of Ledger since 2017. I love my original Nano S, and I now love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest way and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against other people and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino really is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. So if you want to find out more, head over to BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is at bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. Please remember to gamble responsibly. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Ledin, to the podcast. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. And with the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation, and they have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency, and they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. 
With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Leaden is there to support all your needs. And not only a Leaden sponsor, I am now a customer of theirs. So if you want to find out more about Leaden, please head over to Leaden.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Morning, David. How are you? Good morning. Do you do the thing where you pretend not to start, but you're actually starting? Well, sometimes. Okay. But we've now started. <laughs> I'll be on my guard. Some, sometimes we do that, but usually we just have a conversation going. And, yeah. And then they're like, have we started? And we're like, yeah, we've started. Yeah, we're that's recording. the trick. But, Make uh, it natural. Yeah, man. Well, listen, you uh, did this at short notice, so thank you. Thank you very much for this. My uh, brother sent me across your article, and he's like, you've got to read oh, wow. this. And uh, I think I sent it straight to Danny and said, we've got to try and talk to this guy, because uh, you crystallize a lot about an area I've been struggling with with regards to regulation versus no regulation. Mm. And that's something I definitely want to get into. But most of all, I think what was interesting is you, you know, you made the comparison with what happened in 2008 and Bitcoin was meant to save us from that. Right, it, right. Was, it was in the Genesis block and here we are. Mm-hmm. We've essentially just gone through our own crypto version of, um, of 2008. And one thing I will say, like, you know, my show is a Bitcoin show. But this show, you can't make this show without talking about crypto. <laughs> so anyone listening, it's uh, I will use crypto and Bitcoin interchangeably. Um, right. But we can't not do that. But we can also, you know, we can get into some specific things where this stuff is relevant for Bitcoin because some of the entities that we're talking about were, were holders of Bitcoin and there was some forced selling ultimately at the end that, that did impact Bitcoin. So, you know, it's not some side issue, even if you are just a strict Bitcoiner. Nope, you cannot get away from that. Um, so, man... Banks must be trusted to hold our money and transfer it electronically, but they lend it out in waves of credit bubbles with barely a fraction in reserve. Satoshi Nakamoto, circa 2009. I've kept a lot of notes from this one. Usually I do it with one page, but I... You do I, have a lot of notes. I'm actually kind of nervous. No, don't be, man. I'm only referring to what you wrote, but I uh, I think this is uh, an important show to make, and I think it's important to have the right notes with me. So give me the background to doing the article, though. And we will share it in the show notes. Everyone should read it. Um, well, no, there, there, there's not a ton of background, just that, you know, it was obvious that this was the, um, you know, this was the big one, you know, and uh, the the goal was to write a fairly comprehensive, I mean, it's, I think it's something like 3,000, 4,000 words, so mm. it's like 15 pages long, yep. um, and, uh, you know, to write something fairly definitive about all of the relationships and try and do the big picture, um, because that's ultimately where it really takes on meaning. You start out and you just see, you know, one bankruptcy, one default, one hack, da-da-da-da-da. And then what does that add up to? Um, something really bad. And so you have to, you do eventually have to draw it all together into just one piece and, and try and tell one story. Uh, and that was what this was. And obviously it doesn't get everything, but the goal was to to do that big picture. Well, so we, we will work through that. And um, I also do want to cover 2008 and what happened there as well. Right. Um, I, uh, I think it's the, the most interesting part of this to me was that 2008 was built on the back of deregulation on the repeal of Glass-Steagall. And then following that, we had Dodd-Frank, right. which was to try and, uh, rebuild some confidence and stability back in the system, yeah. which I know Trump has walked back parts of, but in terms of that, it puts out there that idea of what is the role of regulation. I know certainly some people who listen to this show will be anti all regulation. Some people will be pro-minimal regulation. Some people are pro-regulation, mm-hmm. but there are trade-offs with regulation, which the entire global financial system felt in 2008. Right. And to a certain extent, 
we have felt this year in the uh, in the crypto slash Bitcoin world. Yeah, and Glass Steagall is exactly the right place to to get to. Eventually, it might be a little wonky to start there, but um, I mean, it's it's about uh, separating the roles of a financial institution and making sure that people aren't sort of mixing the pots, which is a lot of what happened here. Well, and I think that the most important part of this, and the reason I care about this, I'm not. Um, somebody who's pro-regulation for the sake of just being somebody who supports government. I'm yeah, I'm only pro-good mm. government and I'm only pro-small good government. I'm very critical of the current government, whether it's ours or the UK or mm. the US government here. I'm very critical of our central banks. I'm very critical of everything they've done. But I also recognize that a, a, a small number of people can influence the lives of a lot of people. Right. One of the um, comparisons for me was... Now, you talked about in the article how bleak it was for some of the people who lost all their everything they owned in Anchor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned this in a show the other day. I, I always think back to the end of the big short where you see the family leaving their house, packing up their car. And yeah. I think of the 10 million people who lost their homes just in the US alone. Mm-hmm. Outside of all the other financial devastation that was caused globally. And in a deregulated world, we aren't protected from that. And in right. a regulated world, we seem not protected from not protected from it. And for me, I'm just most interested in uh, what is the best system yeah. and how did people not get fucked who had nothing to do with the irresponsible leverage decisions that people made, whether it's in crypto or outside of it. Yeah, and I, and I think that maybe the place that I would start um, in, in trying to diagnose the situation is actually not all that comparable to 2008. Okay. Well, sort of, um, because one of the X factors here is that it's a technology that people truly do not understand. And when you look at, I'm sure if you look at the people who were in Luna, in Anchor, um, or people who were depositing in Celsius, um, I mean, essentially it's an attempt to get some of the benefits of this crypto class that you keep hearing a lot about on the news. Um, but you, you know, if you're in Luna, and, and we can talk about this because it also includes a bunch of people who are supposed financial professionals. But if you're in Luna, you clearly don't understand what's going on at a very basic level. Um, and I think that has been, if anything, the big wake up call for me is when you think about regulation, you it, it's painful to really articulate because you you want to put faith in individuals, um, but you do have to start from this idea that people really do not know what they're dealing with, um, especially when it comes to crypto, which is like technologically complicated, and then you add financial complication on top of that. And um, you know, it, it really is. I think that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's interview, somewhat infamous interview on Odd Lots uh, a few months ago, talking about the DeFi black box was, um, you know, it's spot on. It is a black box for for most people. Um, and then you add like another layer of abstraction on, on top of that. And um, I don't know, there needs to be some kind of mechanism for making sure at the very least that people are fully aware of their risks. And uh, in, in all of these cases, and this does include 2008, um, people just did not understand the risk that they were signing up for. And, and that, I think, at the very minimum has to be the, the goal of regulation would be to ensure that kind of clarity and transparency and just being upfront and making sure that there's just like, at least you have to check a box that says, I know I could lose all my money, something like that, you know? Yeah, and, and there is another area of debate that I think is worth having as well is what and if any crimes have been committed. Now, right. again, we have a range of listeners and some people will not believe that a crime has been committed and that the state shouldn't intervene. Uh, I'm, I'm not one of those people who agree with that. I think if you uh, if you lie and you defraud and you do certain things that cause people to lose yeah. everything they own, 
Um, you've committed a crime. Bertie Madoff went to jail. I think it was like 150 years. Oh, yeah. Sentence he died him. in prison. Yeah, I mean, his son committed suicide. I think four people committed suicide on the back of what happened with his Ponzi, Ponzi scheme. And we've got no idea yet of, of the devastation that's been caused to what happened to people in right. Luna. So that's a whole other area of debate. But I did uh, I did open with my notes in the Luna, three hours capital, Celsius Voyager, Contagion Bubble. And I was like, I did, but how did it start? And I got Luna. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that we have to be careful because I, I led with Luna in mind, but um, it's sort of the most spectacular one of the, I, what I laid out, three factors that sort of kicked off the contagion. Um, but it, it wasn't, you know, the first or even um, necessarily the biggest. Um, we can get into this in whatever depth you, you want, but there was also, um, especially with Three Arrows, I mean, Three Arrows was ultimately the center of the contagion. Luna was kind of a, a spark. Um, and uh, Three Arrows was also underwater on some huge GBTC positions that seemed really ridiculous. Uh, they, they bought in at a premium and wrote it all the way down to like a 15 or 20% discount. Um, and Matt Walsh at Castle Island has speculated that that was kind of their first, the first arrow that they took. Um, and then they, you know, the Luna thing might have even been kind of a desperation attempt to, to get out of that hole. Um, and then also uh, Steeth, the uh, Lido staked Ether, had uh, some people refer to it as a DPEG. I think that's a that's an inaccurate characterization, but um, it was trading at a discount that also apparently was a, was a hole in their sheet. Um, and, but speaking of of you know criminal versus whatever, I think that um, Three Arrows is a good example of how that usually plays out in reality, which is that if they had stayed solvent, none of their internal processes would have come under the kind of scrutiny that they now are. So. Um, if you lose everybody's money, somebody is going to find out a way that you did it criminally. Um, and, you know, that you can debate the ethics of that. Um, but uh, in, in reality, that's what's going to happen is that there will be evidence of deception, of misrepresentation, of things that people can get you on criminally. And, you know, once you lose everybody's money, there's a lot of motivation for people to find those things to hang a criminal prosecution on. Also, interestingly, I didn't really know much about Luna or Three Hours Capital. I pay him full attention only to mm. Bitcoin. I don't really look at much of the crypto stuff at all. I don't really follow many of the crypto people. Um, I'd not taken a, a look at Luna because I don't use stable coins. And yeah. uh, I wasn't too aware of it. The first time I was aware was somebody in a podcast asked me about it. And Three Hours Capital, I, when when you know, it was very evident that they were about to blow up, and I think I said I'd never heard of these guys. There was a lot of surprise. I like, have you not heard of these guys? These are you know they've been around for ages. I just never paid attention to them. What they do, what yeah. they're involved in, it just completely passed me by. So this entire contagion, I I wasn't prepared for, which strangely makes me think like I've got to run a Bitcoin show mm -hmm. where I don't cover crypto because I don't want to be called a shitcoiner. Right. But at the same time, I need to be aware of and cover cover crypto for the sake of at least having my listeners understand this other stuff that happens outside of Bitcoin that will affect yeah. them. Yeah, and, you know, if, if we will eventually get to the conversation about regulation, I think that, again, that's another aspect of the conversation about regulation, which is that we're all in this market together, you know, and... Whether we like it or whether not. Whether we like it or not, you know. Um, and, of course, Bitcoin is the guy who's like, I'm not locked in here with you, you're locked in here with me. But um, that being... A, setting that aside, like, things that people do affect everybody else. Um but, you know, it's also interesting. I, I had a very similar experience in terms of Luna and uh, and even Three Arrows to a certain extent. But, I mean, Luna uh, was basically irrelevant in October. And then by January, it 
um, flipped Binance stablecoin, whatever that was, um, to become number three. And that's when we at Coindesk really started digging in. And um, I mean, what's incredible, and, and I, I can talk about this at length because it's so fascinating, but we spent like two days looking at Luna and immediately it was obvious that it was doomed to failure. Um, and at the same time as we were doing this work, you have like Novogratz getting his Luna tattoo. Um, and, you know, like, we'll talk about that. Um, but, and, and Three Arrows put in $200 million in February. Um, and, and these are supposed to be the people, and, and you know, Celsius, uh, Celsius had a $500 million position in Luna that it withdrew and was probably one of the ones that caused the DPEG. Um, so they basically got out right before the steamroller smashed them. Um, and, and these are the people who are being trusted to manage your money. And they put hundreds of millions of dollars into what anybody with frankly, fairly basic understanding of finance would have and should have understood as an unsustainable scheme. Um, and, and that also, I think, speaks to, you know, maybe it doesn't speak to regulation because somebody like Novogratz, he's dealing with private money and what he has to face now is reputational damage. Um, but like Celsius, they're, they're going to retail. They're saying we're like a bank and no bank is going to uh, take your deposit and turn around and put it into even like venture capital, much less a, a, a shit coin. I'm sorry, I should have asked. Is there a language criteria on Fuck this? Fuck no, okay, man. I, I get about an email a week telling me to calm the language Okay, down. great. Yeah, because I'm really bad. I, I will try and tone it down because I probably beat you without trying. But Don't worry, man. Um, but anyway, so, so this, I think, ultimately gets to the most infuriating part of this for me and the part where I do think there has to be some space for regulation, which is I don't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of accredited investor rules, but um, I, it, it's terrifying to think of all of these people who thought like, oh, this DeFi stuff, it's returning 20% consistently with zero risk. I'm just going to hand my money over to Alec Mashinsky and he's going to, you know, make me rich. And um, that was never a realistic proposition, um, partly because we still don't even really understand what DeFi is. Um, I mean, it's only been around in real force for two, maybe three years. And so the idea that you're going to then come and build a retail front-facing operation specifically to harvest DeFi um, is is crazy on its face to me. And well, it's, t it's taking deposit of funds and going to Vegas. Essentially, and literally that is, well, not literally, sorry. Um, I mean, very close to literally that is what happened. I mean, that's how you wind up with Celsius putting money into Badger Dow um, and losing $50 million in a hack and, and just like making objectively dumb moves. Um, because, I mean, Alex Mashinsky is not a money manager. He doesn't know finance. I mean, at best, he's a tech guy with a honestly fairly decent track record, and that's one reason people, I think, got, well, got taken. But I, that's a bit questionable. I well, still don't think he's the inventor of VoIP like he's gone around telling it. That's a complicated question, and I haven't really dug into it. I mean, it's, it's like somebody said, uh, it's like saying you're the inventor of a nuclear reactor. No, like there's a bunch of people who put inputs into that. But um, I mean, you know, Mashinsky, as far as I know, uh, God knows what he might have lied about in retrospect. But um, to my knowledge, he he ran the company that installed all the wireless in the New York City subways. So I mean, he's actually done things. And okay. that's more than you can say for a lot of these people. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, it's finance. It's not tech. It's different. And 
Um, so there, there has to be some kind of like transparency there that obviously wasn't this time around. Um, but I also, you know, this I, I go back and forth on this whole thing in terms of sentiment and how I feel about it because at the same time, yeah, like retail should have known better. Um, on some level, like there is a part of me that's like, this is an incredibly speculative thing. If you just read like two articles, you're going to have your mind blown if you think this is secure and and reliable. Um, and and people didn't do that. Well, I've made a show and a career on the back of the fact that I can ask simple questions and be very honest about what I understand and what I don't yeah. understand. And one of the things I do on purpose, uh, and Danny knows I do this, I purposely don't go too down the rabbit hole on technical right. things and I purposely go, don't go too, too far down the hole on financial things because I want my understanding to be very similar to the audience. Mm -hmm. So if I go too far down on, say, the technical side of Bitcoin, I might lose kind of that uh, edge where I, I, I forget. I've, I'm complacent about what people understand. Yeah. So I've never really fully spent all the time understanding the protocol and that's by design. Mm. Yeah, when somebody says to me, you don't know what an XPUB is, I said, no, and I kind of still don't know. I mean, yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't use it because I think 99% of people will be that way. And so I keep, I principally keep to that. But I think you've hit on something really, really important here, which is that you can understand Bitcoin at a high level and it makes sense and it seems like it should work. Yes. Whereas, um, I mean, I'll just pick Luna. There's a million other examples. Um, I mean, there is no high-level understanding that is compelling. The high-level understanding is actually the one where you can see the holes. It's when you get Doquan in front of a microphone and he's spewing catchphrases at you at 100 miles a second, that's when it seems reasonable or something. Yeah, but um, come on, man. How old are obfuscation, you? Obfuscation, you know? Give me the range. You don't have to give me an exact age. Be I think I'm a me. couple years younger than you. I'm, I'm in my early 40s. Yeah, okay. So similar age, right? A lot of people here are making their first investments. Firstly, one of my, one of my son's friends buys crypto stuff, right? So he's barely over 18. Right. Uh, judging by how some of the people talk on Twitter, they're in their early 20s, mm -hmm. mid-20s. It's a lot to try and understand at that yeah. age. I'm in my 40s. I still don't understand a lot of this. My my only you know big red flag was when I was first asked about Luna and I was told the returns they're paying. I was like, well, that's that's not sustainable. Right. <laughs> Fine. Right. You know, I wouldn't buy that shit. Um, but, but for some people, they, even that doesn't feel... Like something, it's not a red flag for some people. Right. Well, and and again, I think um, Luna benefited from DeFi Summer, where you had people in 2020 who were very technically savvy and who were doing all of their allocation themselves personally and getting like 100% APYs on, um, you know, what turned out to be just more shit coins, but they cashed out and they got to keep some of that. Mm -hmm. um, but. You know, I, I do think I will say about the, you know, people and my apologies to your son if he lost my son. Luna, but, um, you know, I think that the people in their 20s are the ones who will ultimately benefit from getting burned, um, right? Like they're not putting out usually so much capital, even if they put out a lot of capital, it's not going to ruin them because they're, they got the rest of their lives ahead of them. Um, the stories that are that I'm hearing that are truly nightmarish are people who are like dentists in their 50s who decided to put their entire life savings into Luna or um, Celsius or whatever. And I mean, those people, you'll recover. There's in some sense, you'll go on to live a life, but your life is forever changed by that. Well, you've destroyed your retirement. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, that's where you start thinking about like, this isn't just degens anymore. 
um, there needs to be some guardrails. And, and I also think that, like, speaking of the kind of not paying attention to Celsius and Luna, um, I think that for people like us, it's also true that we've been through so many cycles of this and we've seen so many of these bad projects come and go. And, and it's almost like blasé at a certain point where it's like, oh, there's another scammer running like a centralized fake crypto thing or like doing an ICO for something that on its face can never work and they'll come and go. But this last cycle, um, I think we finally hit a critical mass in terms of just the amount of money involved and, and the amount of, of retail getting involved um, to where I think we do have to shift our, and it's unfortunate, right? Because this is still, it's such a cliche, but people are correct. This is like, you know, the web in 1998 or something like that. And I think that at this point, we're, we're reaching a level where the financialization of crypto is actually becoming a detriment rather than an asset. Because the good part in 2017, 2018, even whatever the amount of frauds were, um, a lot of good things did get funded, right? Like Gnosis is a, is a real operation, a real company that came out of an ICO. Um, go back just not that far before that. Ethereum came out. And and those were good because people didn't know what they were unless they really did. Um, and then people who were technically savvy and who were plugged in were able to like see those things and be like, oh, I'm, I, I want to be involved. Um, and there were no barriers, right? And th that lack of barriers was good. Um, but the, the just level of hype and sort of surface level awareness has become so high that somebody can just throw up a flag with nothing behind it and, and get all this money. And um, the lack of barriers, I think, becomes a detriment. So it's the, the bad things get money that could be going to good things, you know? Yeah, well, I think back 2017, um, I was fairly green with it all. I bought Bitcoin first, but then bought Ethereum and then bought 50 other shit coins. And I got burned to mining. I got burned on ICOs. Mm. And 2018 was a very painful start to the to the year. Sort of famously in your case, right? Sort of famously. I wrote a little thread about yeah. it that people like. But but from that, I just made these very simple decisions. It's like, okay, fuck all this. I'm just going to focus on Bitcoin. There's enough to learn there. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to hold Bitcoin. And then I'm, I'm going to go to work. Me and Danny went to work. We worked our balls off for the yeah. last three years. Built something. Built something. And, you know, we have, Danny has spare capital sometimes. I do. The company does. And we buy more Bitcoin and we snack. And we built a business and we built some yeah. reserves. And that was enough for me. We, you know, these ideas of buying this token and then lending it out on this platform and getting this other token, which isn't part of some farm named after an animal where I have to sell it. Like it's, all of it's just like, what? I don't know what the fuck's going on here. I, right. I didn't even want to pay attention to it. I, I just want to learn. I actually, I didn't even want to learn about crypto. That's the funny thing. I want mm -hmm. to learn about money and the financial system and governance and how humans coordinate. Yeah. You know, I want to learn around all that stuff that comes out of Bitcoin. Or, or I mean, this is also stuff that precedes Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Like these are principles that drove the creation of this stuff in the first place. And I mean, it's just it's it continues to blow my mind when I see people say stuff. I I, I was um like Dudas was talking about some NFT stuff this morning on Twitter, and it was somebody who was saying like. Uh, no, we need to get rid of the uh, revenue share on NFT trading because you actually need to be like generating income behind those NFTs that doesn't come just from trading them. And I'm like, no, you've totally misunderstood. And you're, I know you're not an NFT guy, so mm. hopefully this doesn't miss your audience too much. But like, just as an example of somebody who has completely missed the point of why this was invented in the first place, like an NFT is not supposed to be a security. Those trading fees are there to go back to the artist. It's the one thing that it's 
meant to do. You're just trying to recreate a security all over again. Um, and you're just like running at 180 miles directly into a brick wall and it's going to hurt really bad um, because you don't understand the basic underlying principles. And, and I think that is really scary. There's a lot of people out there who are involved in this ecosystem who just don't have clue one about why they're here. They're just trying to do technical trading, um, which by the way, you know, this will really hopefully piss off the right people. But like, if you're an individual tech, technical trader, you're just asking to lose money. It is a loser's game. Um, it is not a good lifestyle <laughs> either. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if you really are trying to learn about this stuff, there are infinite opportunities. Um, and, and it's very easy to access as a, as a worker, as a learner. Go get involved in a DAO. Write tweets for some lame NFT project. Do something where you're actually participating and contributing. Uh, don't just try and, like, stake somewhere and think that's going to be like your life because you probably have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> NFTs are a weird one because I'm, I'm naturally as a Bitcoiner inclined to hate everything and be suspicious of everything. But I have seen a couple of things in NFTs that are interesting. Recently. I mean, NFTs were invented on Bitcoin. I know, I know. And we were with uh, Jenseth the other day who we were talking to them about him with the rare Pepe's. Yeah. Um, but I actually think it's not that that makes interesting to me. It's still a, just a, a hash of a JPEG right. that exists. Um, what makes it makes it interesting to me as I saw recently somebody I know, um, I think his name's Icebags on Twitter. Mm. I think he put on an event in Vegas and if you bought the, you, the ticket was an NFT and you got a bunch of shit that went with it. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you can use that for certain things, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and like the social stuff and and um, I mean just the ability to be able to airdrop to a certain set of wallets. I mean there, there are interesting uh, utilities that I think will get kind of refined and, and developed. Um, but I think it's another good example of a place where um, if you had some kind, I mean, again, it's dicey to talk about regulation, but um, if you had some kind of control where, you know, people were able to, where people were motivated to put their assets and their capital into something legitimate instead of something illegitimate, it would be good for everybody. Yeah. And, and, you know, how do you accomplish that? It's not easy, but. Danny, have you ever bought an NFT? Are you joking? No. No, of course not. What do you mean, of course not? It's your job. You're a producer. You need to do your research. Not into NFTs. Mm. <laughs> you might have, I thought you might have bought it. I own it. I don't know I own one. I've got a watch. I've, I've got, got a physical. Oh, you no, do you have I've one. got a frog, haven't I? Yeah. It's on a... That's thing. a Pepe, right? Yeah. It's on a... But one of the open not dime. rare ones, yeah. Yeah, I've got one. I Who gave I'd, you that? Rob Hamilton. Rob Hamilton. Yeah. yeah so I mean, they're fun. You know, I uh, I made the mistake in 2018. Instead of buying a punk, I bought a bunch of uh, playing cards. So Fuck. those are useless. But <laughs> should have got a punk man. Yeah, I should have got a punk. I could have absolutely <laughs> quit working forever. But um, we uh, we went down a rabbit hole here. So back, back to Luna. So yeah. uh, I heard about the interest rates, and I thought, oh, well, that's not sustainable. Right. But I didn't know about because there was the Luna token and this token. The inter I didn't fucking right. I didn't know, man. Yeah, so you're talking about the the stable coin, yeah. the algorithmic stable coin, not a real thing, not a real thing, doesn't exist, cannot be created. Fake, fake, fake. Just I try to drill that into people's heads. Well, all because algorithmic stable coins. All algorithmic stable coins. I mean, die is semi-algorithmic, but it's over collateralized, different thing. Okay. Um, but true algorithmic stable coins, and, and this is why, by the way, as things started to get bad, Luna was trying to collateralize itself by buying Bitcoin, which is, again, why Bitcoiners huh. need to worry about this. So hold on, because that was the first time I heard about Luna. Someone was tweeting about they're going to buy 10 billion, 10 billion Bitcoin, and they announced it. I think they which made it the, to about three before it all fell apart. But that, that actually is a bit crazy, the fact that they announced it because they pushed the price up. But 
Do we think the reason, therefore, that they were buying Bitcoin is they realized they were screwed? Oh, they realized they were screwed. Oh, right. Okay. Um, I mean, the reporting that's going on, uh, this is this is rumor mongering by me. So this is unconfirmed. But um, a little bit of what we understand is that there were people close to Do Kwon who were really trying to tell him that what he was doing was going to blow up. And he simply ignored them. Um, because the algorithmic stablecoin thing, it's not just that um, I'll try and give like a very brief description of why they're problematic, um, and the Bitcoin actually plays into this. It's not just that they're trying to issue a U.S. dollar pegged coin that has no actual U.S. dollars backing it. It's that the way those algorithms are designed inherently creates the constant possibility of what's known as a death spiral, where the arbitrage opens up in the wrong direction. Um, to, to back up just a little bit, an algorithm that Sabio Coin, in theory, is supposed to incentivize traders in the open market to uh, do financial arbitrage, to keep one token close to a dollar by buying and selling the other one. Um, unfortunately, once either of those, and especially once the peg gets too far off on the on the dollar stablecoin or the whatever the stablecoin is pegged to, um, then it becomes profitable to drive it further off the peg. Uh, it's very similar to what George Soros did to the pound uh, in the I think whether it's late eighties or early nineties. Um, he he found an arbitrage and then he hammered it and took all the money out. And that's ultimately what happened with Luna. Um, the, the thing about the Bitcoin buy that's super insane is that, A, yes, you publicly announced that you're going to drive up your cost basis. Um, but B, it was never clear how this was going to be integrated into their balancing system in a uh, you know systematic way, right? So you have uh, TFL, the, the quote-unquote nonprofit or LFG, sorry, I, I get them mixed up. So TFL is Terraform Labs. That's the actual company. Um, Luna Foundation Guard is the, uh, I guess it's like some third party. Maybe it's a nonprofit. Um, and for a while, they were just sitting on the Bitcoin and saying like, hey, this is backing Luna. There was no mechanism. Nothing was defined. But the instant you put that on chain, that, act that the actual Bitcoin becomes integrated into that algorithm, um, somebody will then exploit it for the Bitcoin the same way they did for the profits that they got from breaking the peg. So ultimately, you probably, if you have a fractionally backed um, stable coin that has like 10% Bitcoin backing it, that makes it less stable, not more, because you've put a mechanism out there for people to go in and actually take that Bitcoin if they have enough capital to knock you off your peg. Um, so it's just an insane, insane thing all the way down fundamentally broken, never would have worked. Yeah, and the, the sad thing for them is they ended up unwinding most of that Bitcoin position. I mean, I think all of it. No, I thought there was like 180 Bitcoin left at the end of it or something. Well, and that's the most interesting part is that they seemed to really believe that it would work. But they unwound the position and and never managed to stabilize no, and get the peg back. So they could have just let it die and at least be sat there with 3 billion in Bitcoin. And then maybe their holders would have actually gotten a little bit more back too. And instead, yeah. it all went to the arbitragers who are attacking the peg, exactly as, you know, even even though it wasn't uh, automated. If it had been automated, the risk would have been even higher. But, you know, they, they behaved as as if it were automated the same way. So And so Luna was the spark for 3AC. I think it was where um, a lot of the uh, margin car calls started coming from. Um, and, and then once those calls started coming in and they were just ghosting exchanges, that was when it was really obvious. Um, they did have the, the problems beforehand, um, GBTC and Steeth. 
Um, but also, and, and this is, I think, uh, th where the criminal element starts to come into it, um, they had basically done the equivalent of going to every bank on the street and taking out a bunch of loans without telling them that they already had a bunch of loans from the other banks. Um, and this is not a crypto problem. Um, and in fact, it, it illustrates why these big centralized players are, you know, their lack of transparency is the problem because just, um, you know, not even a year, maybe it was two years ago, the exact same thing happened at a hedge fund called Orkegos that I think people probably have heard about, uh, a guy named Bill Huang, who was also- Was that the GameStop thing? No, no, no. So, no. Um, no, this was not nearly as degen as that, and it still managed to blow itself up. Um, guy named Bill Huang, one of the so-called tiger cubs, um, was running a, a very similar to Suzu. He had a huge macro long bet on, you know, just a basket of equities. And he went to, you know, Citibank. I, I don't want to name specific names because I don't know who exactly his counterparties were, but big names like that. Um, and got like a billion here, a billion there. And, and his entire thesis was, if I keep buying this stock, I alone can drive the price up enough uh, that this will somehow play out. And uh, again, a, a totally unsustainable bad idea, uh, but, but he managed to go and get all this debt. Um, and people, just like with Three Arrows, lost hundreds of millions of dollars because he ultimately uh, as soon as things turned on him, he was screwed. From what I understand with Three Arrows, though, from those who know them, like I said, I didn't know anything about them. I, I, you know, I just hadn't paid any attention. People people were shocked. They're like, hold on, what? Three Arrows? Like, right. they were the ones. They were so successful previously. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they, what did they turn? Like 30 million or whatever a low number was or 3 million up into like the billions under AUM? Well, that's the thing that we don't actually know, right? We we assume so it could have all been for, bullshit. Well, it could have all been loans. That's okay, the thing. Okay. We we thought for from several years that they were a prop shop, that they were just trading their own money. That that Kyle and, and Sue were geniuses who had gotten in early enough that they just had uh, a, a giant pile of money under them. And it turns out that that was not true at all, um, or at least you know it was a, an order of magnitude different than what we thought it was in terms of what was their actual money. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure why on-chain detectives didn't figure that out at a certain point. Um, that does seem like a, a gap in the intelligence. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they basically were misrepresenting the, the nature of their entire business. And the one that amazes me with that is Voyager giving them an uncollateralized loan. Boy, don't ask like me. Like what? <laughs> like what? Yeah, I mean, six hundred and fifty million dollars to these two guys in Singapore, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's just it's a huge question. Um, it 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 makes you sort of ask a lot of deeper questions about um, maybe something else was going on there. Um, I mean, I hate to cast aspersions, but like. There is no business rationale where that makes sense, especially because Voyager was also dealing with customer funds mm -hmm. um, and and retail customer funds, and uh, so I, I I'm left without anything to say to that. It's just it, I think it's the single stupidest trade of the the past year. Uh, it's going to go down in history uh, as as the the worst decision anybody made during this. Uh, unwind. Well, one decision killed your business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so, um, yeah, I, I just, I have no explanation. I don't think there is one. It's insane. And then Celsius, the the last one on this. So Mashinsky is an interesting character. Um, we've talked about him already. 
Uh, I've met him a few times. Mm -hmm. I've uh, been quite clear publicly. I've never really trusted him. Mm. Um, I've never really quite trusted Celsius. Now I have, um, you know, for full transparency, Blockfire, a sponsor of mine. We right. should say that. And you, by the way, you can talk about them as much as you right. like. But uh, they were always put in, the two companies were always put in the same bucket. And my very basic different understanding of the two was, is that Blockfire and their yield from lending out Bitcoin right. to mar mar market makers and such. Uh, and, um, you know, started with very good rates and their rates eventually dropped to, you know, not particularly great rates. Right. But the reason being is that... They changed. They, well, no, no. They, I think they no, altered it according to market conditions, yeah, right? Yeah, they didn't change. That's yeah. what you want they from a lender. So they altered to market conditions, but they could only pay out based on the rates of what they were lending out. Right. And because no one was really borrowing from them... It was actually connected to what was happening in yeah. the real world. <laughs> not some weird... They weren't gambling with funds. Um, yeah. In the way they did. Now, look, they made a. We know quite publicly they made a cup. They made a GBTC bet that went wrong, and even with the unwinding of um, what happened with Three Eyes Capital, they lost eighty million there. But they are Which still is getting off pretty easy, actually, compared to some other people. Yeah, and look, look, there have been plenty of people telling me why are they still a sponsor. Why do you still support this? The you know the company's still uh, functioning. It's still I mean, they never paused withdrawals, withdrawals yeah. so that puts them in a different category. But I think that the the thing that. Um, in terms of, you know, red flags and, and just when you listen to somebody like, like Do Kwon or Mashinsky talk and they just hammer, like, we're offering this rate, we're offering this rate, we're offering this rate. Well, how are you offering the rate? I mean, I, I'm doing some deeper research for a Do Kwon project that I'm working on. And if you go back just even to like the beginning of the year, um, or maybe it was late last year, there's a fascinating video of him talking to the Stanford Blockchain Club. Um, and he actually had uh, somebody who was part of the team at Lightspeed that invested in uh, Luna, which, again, no excuses. But uh, this person was saying, oh, it's so great. There's this anchor thing, and you can get 20% yield out of it. This is a venture capital partner at Lightspeed Ventures, and she thinks that 20% interest is a feature. It's madness. It's utterly insane. And I think that, like, Probably there are plenty of examples of Mashinsky taking the same tack where it's like, oh, we're offering this great rate. It happens to be in our corporate absolute trash coin. Um, but uh, sure, come and, come and yield farm with us. And that's not what's going on at all. You know, um, if, you're, if you're oriented towards – if you consider your APR a marketing tool, you're dead in the water. Like that is not the business that you're actually in. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's I think – the, the mentality that led to all of this is like, we're going to gather all of these customers by offering this unsustainably high APR, and then we're going to figure out later how to deliver it. And, and that doesn't work. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs, and I am back mining Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I've actually been back mining Bitcoin for about nine months with Compass, and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin, which has pretty much paid off two of my S19s already. And it's so good to be back mining. It's been a really interesting year. It's forced me to learn a lot more about mining again. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass, and to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, and it's based on a number of factors. Price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass has made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. 
Now, if you are interested in mining, if you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling at the moment. I'm only buying, and I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Now, Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. So if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Also today, we have BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. And now BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now also expanding globally. They've also got this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you do want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more about what they do, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Do we know how big the Celsius hole is? That's a that's a good question. Oh, the hole. I yeah, thought you meant hole in assets. There. Oh, no. We figured it out over the weekend, I believe. $1.2 billion, folks. Shit. It's not good. Right. Um and uh, so, I mean, there's so no be, recovery, they, they man. Be, it's, it's like 1.2 out of 4.5 is missing, something like that. Um, so they beat, they beat Mt. Gox. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it, you know, you have to ask how that's calculated because um, – and, and even then I think it's understated because if I remember correctly what I was reading, that 1.2 billion is them still counting – the Celsius token that they have on their books, which they're valuing at something like $400 million. So it's zero now. It's, it's got to be, I mean, it's not zero and we can talk about that insanity too, but um, you know, it's, it's effectively zero. And we really, to circle back around to regulation, this whole idea that you can be like a C corp that's issuing your own token. And then that is somehow an asset we got to get rid of that because the incentive structure is completely broken. Um, I mean, I, I think that there might be cases where it's responsible. I, I you know, I think I don't know if Blockfight has their own, but um, they don't have know. a token. Okay, so so again, a good sign um, because you know, 
again, people who do not understand what's going on thought that they could just get their yield in the Celsius token and then, oh, here's your incentive if you just park the Celsius token with us, we'll give you 30%. We'll give you even more of something that's worthless. And um, so, yeah, it's just like completely terrible all the way down. And that's that's going to be retail funds that have been lost, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's got to be mostly retail. Um, well, no, sorry, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't know. But I do know that their institutional lending business was waning pretty hard going into the you know middle part of this year. That's, uh, that's a terrible scenario. I read the uh, statement from Mashinsky where he talked about we will see this as a, yeah. What did he say? Learning, I'm going to guess learning opportunity. No, it was similar. Um, similar. It was. Uh, was on Twitter. Yeah, it's, yeah. You got to find the Celsius statement. I am humbled. That's another one that you can go with sometimes. <laughs> we will look back at this moment. As yes. A, uh, I can't remember the word he used. I will look most... back on this moment from prison with fondness. Well, he certainly faced the prospect of going to jail for this. I think that's a very serious prospect. Oh, I'm not joking. I mean, I think that, um, you know, and, and this is all of them, frankly. And and when we're talking about regulation, we can talk about enforcement too, which I, you know, I'm a big fan of enforcement over regulation. Um, I think that uh, punishing people in dramatic and meaningful ways for having misrepresented themselves might be more effective than writing the rules down on a piece of paper somewhere. And fraud is fraud, right? Those mm. laws a- apply across whether it's crypto or Beanie Babies or shoes or whatever. And and so those are principles that you don't have to write anything new about. Um, and so I do think that in general, that is a, a, a good uh, way to go. Um, you just have to have public officials with the backbone to enforce the laws that are already on the books. What's that, pr- what's that jail here? Here in New York. Rikers? Rikers. Could he end up in Rikers? Um, he's not going to end up in Rikers, unfortunately. What if they need a new VoIP system installed? I mean, <laughs> he, he could, you know. They're, they're unfortunately exploiting prisoners at Rikers to get calls home. So maybe he could do some good home. So good it's, it's, a, it's a real, it's a real uh, one where I wonder what the ethical position of a, of a libertarian would be on something like this. Is this something where you... Well, he's a thief. The, he's a thief, but what are the consequences that you would face in this scenario? Is it Should it only ever be reputational or should... Well, they? I mean, I don't know what kind of libertarians you're talking to, but I mean, at least some of them still believe that it's the role of the state to engage in policing. So Yeah, and I think fraud is one of those things that they do believe that should be... I mean, policed. property rights, you know, libertarians don't, I think, in general, understand this sufficiently, but like... Property rights don't exist without the state and um, and, and enforcement, and uh, you you have to be willing to do that on some level because there will be people who find gaps. I mean, one another thing that you you know we should talk about is it is reputational, and there's the damage on the backside, but there's also like who are you putting in your money with in the front side, right? Like yeah. who are these people? And I think one of the reasons that Mashinsky managed to do so much damage is because he did have some leg to stand on reputationally. Here we go. This is the right decision for our community and company, said Alex Machinsky. We have a strong and experienced team in place to lead Celsius through this process. And this is the best bet. I am confident that when we look back at the history of Celsius, we will see this as a defining moment. We're acting well, with resolve. He's right about that. Yeah, well, he's right about that, but it's the bit afterwards. We're acting with resolve. We unbanked everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's that thing. I love it. <laughs> Banking the unbanked. And unbanking the banks. Unbanking the banks. Oh God, I shouldn't laugh. I'm I'm laughing because the jokes. I'm laughing because it's so stupid. Not yeah. I'm not laughing at people's misfortune. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. it's this bit. We will see this as a defining moment. We're acting with resolve and confidence. Served. 
the community and strengthen the future of the company. This company has no fucking future. No, no. I mean, I mean, this is where you, um, and, and this is the thing to, to, to watch out for. Um, I mean, this is where you get people trying to publicly navigate their way out of prosecution. Yeah. Um, and, and like reframe history and push things under the rug that they don't want remembered. Um, and, and we're going to see a lot of that. I don't think he's going to get away with it. Um, so one of, one of the things I wanted to do, I mean, I don't know how much you know about this, but I, I thought it'd be worth coming back and talking about what happened in 2008 because I think it's a good setup to at least explore yeah. what regulation means because, again, a lot of people might not even know why 2008 happened. We only I only know more about it because we made a four-part show about Steve Mnuchin at one point. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to understand what happened in the 2008 financial crisis. And I went all the way back to as far as Clinton and what happened with the deregulation under Clinton and the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Correct bit. me if I'm ever wrong about any of this, but the repeal of Glass-Steagall and the, um, you know, open up the banks to be able to trade derivatives, but also mm -hmm. he wanted more people to be able to have mortgages. He wanted more homeowners, right. which is a very you know, progressive thing, very left thing to want. But in doing so, people had to have low, lesser and lesser deposits. Right, right. I think prior to that, you had to have like a 20% deposit. But I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we can definitely get into that a little bit. I think that there is sort of – it's two different um, things. There is the, uh, the, the user side, you might say, <laughs> where yeah. we want to make it a little bit easier for people to get a mortgage. But then the financialization side, and, and I would argue that the financial side is, is where the real flaw uh, lay before we move on, though, I do want to put in a quick plug because we yeah. talked about Luna, yeah. um, and uh, you know I don't want to just say, "Oh, you should have noticed this." Like in April on CoinDesk, we I published a, a lengthy piece describing exactly what was going to happen, and then it happened. Oh, is that what you sent um, me? That's what I sent. We'll you. put that in the show notes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and and so um, you know, I just want to say that like read, you know, just be out there reading and looking in depth. Um, the the resources are available. And I've, you know, I, I heard from people directly who said, you know, I read this piece that you wrote, and I got my money out and you saved me. Um, and so, you know, I feel, I feel pretty good about that. Um, and uh, yeah, read Coindesk, I guess, is my quick plug there. No, no, it's, it's a fair plug. We'll, we'll share, we'll, you know, we'll share everything you've written yeah. out in the show. You sent, you sent me another article. We'll make sure it's all in there. Yeah. People should read it all. Um, but the big picture of 2008, and, you know, I'm in finance because of what happened in 2008. Right. Um, I was uh, finishing my PhD, and I was actually directly affected because I was in Iowa uh, at, a, at a state school, and I had, you know, another six to eight months of funding left, supposedly, to work on my PhD, which is in history of technology, which is how I got involved in all of this. Um but because of the financial crisis in 2009, I actually got my funding pulled for a, a PhD program at the University of Iowa and wound up spending that last semester uh, working as a shorter cook, working as a parking lot attendant, uh, teaching at the local community college and finishing my PhD all at the same time instead of sitting on a nice stipend and doing nothing. Three jobs to pay for it. Right. So, so very personal for me. Um, and at the high level, the uh, the 2008 crisis absolutely looks exactly like this because you had these things called CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, which were built on top of mortgages and were essentially um, designed to keep uh, banks safe 
when mortgages went down, but nobody was doing the math of like the total amount outstanding of these shared obligations. And so ultimately, there was just not enough to cover when that actually happened. Um, and uh, so in, in, a, in a lot of ways, it's similar to if you think about like the Celsius token as some kind of financial instrument based on the returns from DeFi, uh, if those returns turned out to not be there, then your Celsius token is worthless in some of the same ways that a CDO uh, or a, uh, a multi-tranche like mortgage-backed security turned out to be worthless in, in 2008. Um, it's all about like promises that can't be fulfilled. You're making promises. Um, if you're Alex Mashinsky, you're in issuing that token, and that is a promise that there's going to be value here over the long term. Um, and then if the, you know, financial mechanisms behind that actually don't work out, then that promise is worth nothing. Um, and that's the, the very high level, I think, of, of both crises in, in a nutshell. But also both crises get to the root of human greed and what human greed <clears throat> can do. Well, you, you combine human yeah. greed with leverage. Yeah. Again, a few small players can cause insurmountable damage to a large amount of people. Yeah. And, and I talk about... The reason I bring up the idea of regulation, which I know is heresy in Bitcoin land, but mm. it's, I don't just live in Bitcoin land. I also live in right. two worlds. I live in a world where I have a mortgage and savings and have family, I have friends, right. and I have plenty right. of friends who you're not going to be able to sell Bitcoin on an idea of complete deregulation, mm -hmm. tiny government. You've got to go step by step. And there right. is, there's this kind of contradiction whereby very critical of the state, very critical of central banks. They've caused the majority, if not all, the problems with regards to fiat currencies. You know, this kind of decivilizational process we're kind of going through. Mm. They're entirely to blame. But at the same time, some regulations out there do actually protect mm -hmm. people. And what is the right balance? There are going to be people who say, have a completely free, fair, open market, mm -hmm. which I don't think solves anything. Um, you can have a highly over-regulated market where the government have control of everything, which I also think is mm -hmm. great. So, like, where is the line? For me, I don't know where that line is, but uh, I'm interested in exploring that and interested in exploring what it means. Yeah. Well, I would say two things first to just kind of, like, set the stage here, which yeah. is um, I think that m the more time I spend just repeating this line, the more I find it compelling that, like, a perfect regime for me would be zero upfront regulation, extremely fierce back-end enforcement on bad actors. Um, that is a unrealistic scenario, I think, because ultimately it requires a lot of manpower to do that enforcement on the back-end. Um, and you'll have people kind of running into that machine all the time like a wood chipper. And ultimately, um, government funding for enforcement is always contingent on somebody's ability to cut that budget, right? So if an industry decides that they don't want that, they can just lobby enough to defund that department. So it's, it's not a realistic scenario. Um, but what I worry about with the front-end regulation especially in crypto, is that there are a lot of smaller scale things that really could be useful experiments and we need some kind of safe harbor where maybe if you're not dealing with a certain amount of money or um, you have certain protections in place for all of your depositors, you can just go ham and do whatever you want. Um, I mean, that would be that would be ideal for me because I think that there are really useful experiments that can get squashed by um, regulation. And, and, you know, I was listening to something today which reminded me that 
we have a really clear example in crypto of prediction markets, right? Like prediction markets could have been a genuinely, you know, it's, it's, you're not making any grand claims about what you're doing. It's just kind of gambling for fun mostly. Um, but, but, but kind of trying to give you information on what people think outcomes will be. Yeah. And, and there is some like useful information that comes out of that. You still occasionally see a news, news piece written about um, what a particular prediction market is saying at this, that, or the third time. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's just impossible because of regulation. Um, and so that, I think, is one thing that we've already lost out on because of some of the um, rules that are in place. Um, how how the re- has regulation prevented that from happening? Well, because it is considered gambling. And so uh, I think that, like, in terms of serving U.S. customers, um, I know that, like, Gnosis and Augur were both ICOs in 2017, 2018 that people were quite excited about. And uh, they just... Gnosis has managed to make it under a different business model, um, but Augur has kind of uh, gone the way of the dinosaur because they just couldn't do the regulatory thing. I thought there were some flaws in I haven't looked at Augur for a while. I mean, this is what we're talking to Paul Stork about tomorrow because he wants it? to do drive chains on Bitcoin, which allows prediction markets, I think. Okay, interesting. Yeah. We'll have that conversation then. So anyway, the protection innovation should be a priority. Um, the second thing I was going to say, though, is that um, I, I, I will sort of remind people who are so staunchly anti-regulatory that like the SEC doesn't is not God and does not have infinite power. Like it has a lot of power. Um, and if you run afoul of it, you can definitely get into a lot of trouble that will impact your life in a big way, unless you're Elon Musk. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is that there are spaces beyond regulation. There are spaces beneath regulation. Um, there is sort of international safe harbors that de facto exist for, for you to go and do stuff that you really believe in that might not work under a regulatory regime. Or, or run away to when you've been busted. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a double, double-edged sword for sure. Um, yeah. but, but I guess my only point is just that, like, you know, don't think that the SEC has total control over your life um, if you're doing something that is well-intentioned and genuine. Um, not to get anybody in trouble. But. So, some of the, so I listed some of the parts of the Dodd-Frank Act that came out after in 2010 after mm-hmm. the crisis to just try and understand if there are things there that would be helpful, not so much to, as a claim that I want Bitcoin to be regulated. I don't want Bitcoin to be right. regulated. But I do want think, to identify the things they, tr- they tried to work on, um, which I thought was quite interesting because I'll give you an example of self-regulation in Bitcoin that would be good. Mm. Uh, a lot of people have talked about proof of reserves with exchanges. Now, it's a lot of work, but that's good self-regulation. Now, if you had all the exchanges doing proof of reserves and the ones that didn't, you know, that's essentially, that's your on-chain version of mm-hmm. a Yelp review. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, Coinbase has proved their reserves and Kraken has proved their reserves and Gemini have proved their reserves, but this little fucking, I'm not going to name any because I don't know any, but this, I don't know, one in Canada. Mm for example, mm. has not proved its reserve. Well, right, that was when the discussion of proof of reserve yeah. got going, right? Yeah, but um, you know, that would be an example of some kind of self-regulation that that would be good because you can turn, you can basically see which of the exchanges are operating the right. most, you know, the best way. Now, that look, that doesn't stop from a hack having funds stolen, but the point being is mm. that's some part of self-regulation that would be good. Can we get there on everything? If we can get there on self-regulation, that would be great. But some of the things, so uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Council is responsible for keeping banks other financial firms from becoming too big to fail. So they required 
special annual test to ensure that these large institutions were prepared for the inevitable arrival of recessions and future financial yeah. crisis. So they run that test every year in a, a number of scenarios to make sure these banks can't fail. And I'm pretty sure I read about one. They, they ran one test a year, two, three years ago, and they actually found one failed mm. that would fail under that scenario. Mm-hmm. So they, that was one of, that's been a particularly good thing that I, I think that exists. I wonder if there are stress tests we can put into our system to see if it's too big to fail. But may, you know, what are the things that are going to stop, you know, which are? Well, but then I say that, look, I'm going around in circles here because you pointed out that Luna could fail. What was that, $68 billion in? Nominally, yeah. It's yeah. not real money, but nominally. Yeah, like, yeah, made up money. But the problem is even with these things put in place, you could, you know, unregulated, have self-regulation, these things still could fail. Well, you don't even have to think about that in terms of regulation. Like, proof of reserve should be a competitive point. I mean, you, especially with all of these um, failures, frankly, from exchanges. And um, crypto, and I I do mean crypto rather than Bitcoin, but um, the big picture, I mean, we're, we're technologically very well positioned to have something like that, that level of transparency. Um, and I think that that should be the watchword. Like, it's very difficult if you have a, a hedge fund to, you know, actually put everything on chain. You don't want that level of transparency um, because then people can see your trades and counter trade you. And, and it's a business strategy issue. Um, but for those who aren't familiar, I guess, um, proof of reserves is this idea that you can use uh, zero knowledge proofs and essentially like provide attestations at the high level without getting into the nitty gritty of exactly what you're doing. Um, and and that's, you know, it's an exciting and interesting idea. And I would love to see, I mean, I think that once one exchange implements that, then instantly everybody else is going to Didn't as well. Wonder, did Kraken, Kraken did, have done it? Yeah. Kraken oh, they have. have. Well, think, then I'm wrong. I think some more have done it as well. But it's not like it's something we talk about, and it's not like some. I've heard anyone say, "Well, I don't use that exchange because they don't have proof of reserves." Kraken, I think it's a Coinfloor, Gate.io, Bitmex, HBDC, BTC, and Ledin. Oh, that's great. Gate.io. I'm pretty sure. Bitmex. In, that's a good one. I'm pretty sure back in 2017, I bought XRP on Gate. <laughs> Shitcoin days. <laughs> God, confession. I bought, I bought like 300 pound of XRP. Uh, in 2017 the yeah the standard um but i've never heard if you heard anyone say well i don't use that exchange it doesn't have proof of reserves no but i think you're right i think it could be a competitive like it would definitely yeah and it's a thing that you have to like over time sort of teach people about i mean this is we're talking we know about this because this is like something nick carter said three years ago mm. and and like nobody other than people like us remember it. I think he wrote a paper on it, didn't he? Probably. And Trace May used to talk about it, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and I guess you could do a similar thing for the likes of your Celsiuses, your Voyagers, your BlockFi's. I mean, in theory, again, there are problems because um, not all of that is is on chain and you don't want it all to be too transparent. But yes, in theory, and, and ultimately really something that you absolutely should expect from, from that kind of thing because, um, I mean, for example, we kept hearing this drumbeat of, Celsius lost 50 million here, 100 million here, 200 million there, and eventually you do wind up with a $1.2 billion hole in your balance sheet. And, but a, a proof of reserves wouldn't wouldn't identify if they're doing some funky things in the background, which is... Yeah, or off-chain or like 3AC taking these loans would totally be non-transparent. Um, so, And this sort of gets to, um, I think, another kind of pillar of TradFi regulation that 
you know, it, it's tough to do in a self-regulatory environment. But one of the reasons Three Arrows was such a bad blow up is because they were doing everything at the same time. Mm. They were doing, you know, they were a hedge fund. They were a, an OTC desk. They were a prop shop. They were managing treasuries for startups, which is insane. Um, and when you go back to Glass-Steagall, the reason that that was important is because it it prevented um, retail banks from also being investment banks. That was the basic, you know, Chinese wall that that, that set up. And with the Volcker rule with Dodd-Frank, that would prevent banks from engaging in speculative trading right. activities. Right, exactly. And and that's in, like it's insane that anybody at any level ever thought this was okay. You know, you could you could put that in the place of someone like you would say that. If you had a Volcker rule for the likes of Celsius, they would have broken it. They Oh, they 100% were breaking it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like they were not just engaging in trading of speculative assets. They were a retail operation trading in completely unregulated assets. So it's like Unhedged. your bank turned around and just bought a bunch of pink sheets from, uh, from you know, whatever the uh, – I'm forgetting the word for, for junk bonds. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's on its face crazy. We also have here that uh, enables the Securities and Exchange Commission to regulate derivative trading or contracts between two parties to agree on financial asset or set of assets. Well, the SEC are stepping in to try and do this now anyway. I got to say, I might not really totally understand the nuances of that provision because it yeah. sounds like you're regulating private contracts, um, which, yeah, I might, I might just skip commenting on that one. I was more focused on the regulate derivative trading, but then we had this other part of it, the Sarbay, I don't know, the Sarbanes-Oxley reformed mm. corporate responsibility held CEOs personally responsible for accounting errors and gave protections to individuals who flag behavior, behavior, namely whistleblowers. Right. Again, yeah, you can see why these all existed following 2008. Mm -hmm. We blew up the global, <laughs> the world right, economy. Yeah. Requires hedge funds to register with the SEC. Yeah. So, so should and were 3AC registered? Um, well, I mean, they were based in Singapore, so oh, they were okay. they were registered in Singapore, I believe. And you know, it did come out later apparently that they were only authorized in Singapore to be managing like two hundred fifty million dollars. Um, so they were breaking whatever law they were operating under, it seems. Um, which gets to kind of a, another angle on this, which is you can regulate all you want, but there's a lot of character involved here too, and reputation yeah. does matter. But, you know, whistleblower protections, all of these things are, are, are very important. Um, I mean, personal liability. The other thing I will say, though, is that a lot of this stuff, in theory, does still apply to the likes of Celsius. Right. I mean, right now, we don't have to have a separate set of laws for crypto when you're just like, I'll take your U.S. dollars and do something with it, right? Like, that's all the same regulatory regime, ultimately. And this is something else to reassure people who are on the Bitcoin end who um, are, are worried, is that a lot of this regulation would, in theory, fall you know, not on the assets, not on the blockchains. I mean, we have, we've had some scary stuff about... Um, about wallet regulations, which, you know, like everybody, every sane person should be 100% against. Like you- Unhosted wallets. Sacrosanct. Like you absolutely cannot regulate unhosted wallets. Um, it's, well, different discussion. Anyway, yep. point being, a lot of these institutions were just that, institutions who were offering to manage money for you. There are already rules for that stuff. 
Um, and I think it's going to come out that, that those rules that were already in place were being broken uh, severely. So my, my question really is like, what now? What about the future of this? And, and, and it's definitely a question I'd like to put to somebody who's anti-regulation. So like, how does this, do you just accept the chaos and you accept markets figure, figure themselves out? Like, really, how does that play out? You know, what are the stresses on that? Because uh, it's like you put, many retail victims of these cons and failures will be turned off for this for a long time, if not mm -hmm. permanently. And if we want Bitcoin to, just even on Bitcoin, if we just want Bitcoin to be the, this global reserve asset, it would benefit from some more stability, more stable pricing. I don't, you know, I think some people are going to struggle with it, With can be so volatile. And actually, you know, another four years, because what's happened is we've had these blow-ups and things every four years in you know, Bitcoin mm -hmm. slash crypto. You know, another four years' time, if the market is 5, 10x bigger again, how could we have an even bigger blow up with more crazy yeah. shit going on? And it's like, you know, how do we get away from that? If we constantly leave it down to humans, humans are greedy and will do stupid shit. Right, right. And, and, and that's, the, that's the tough part if you're looking at crypto as an ecosystem that is still developing, right? Which is, in my one scenario that would be just fine by me is all these people do go away and, and they don't come back for another decade or, or another 20 years when things are, you know, considerably more developed, um, even in an unregulated environment. And um, there is some emerging stability because ultimately this is just not stuff that a lot of the people who were invested in it should have ever been invested in through whatever mechanism, you know, as I mentioned, DeFi, two-year-old technology in terms of real functionality. I mean, that's, uh, it's hyper novel. And, and the idea, again, that you're going to build like an institution on top of that already, you're getting, you're putting the cart before the horse in a big way. And I feel like a lot of crypto, right, or, you know, leading up to the crash, I don't know where we're at right now, we might still be way ahead of the fulfillment curve in terms of the valuation relative to the actual utility, you know? And I think that even in Bitcoin, there is obviously still some, um, you know, some divergence between what's really going on on the ground and, and the prices on an exchange in the U.S. Um, and when you start talking about more and more speculative stuff, the, the, the gap is even bigger. Um, so I guess all I'm saying is that, like, what I try and convey in my columns pretty frequently is just like, if you don't understand this, don't put your money into it. And I mean, I guess at a certain point you have to accept that people just are not going to listen to that. They're not hearing the message. Um, there's too many like YouTube crypto influencers, which if you really want to start talking about regulation, make YouTubers somehow liable for the undisclosed promotion that they're doing. And um, I don't know, like that's a, that's a whole other issue. But um, yeah, I mean, you want people to get just the right amount of burned might be one way of putting it. Um, but I think looking at it from the other perspective, from a social perspective, if you're a government and you see what happened, you know, in South Korea, like South Korea, their entire like political system is going to be impacted by this because the the level of exposure to Luna was so high. Wow. Um, it's it's literally in some small way causing like social unrest. And so if you're a government who's looking four or five years down the road 
And you think you might get a 5X on just the crypto market, which means a 5X on the the downside for whatever percentage of people get taken in by these con men next time around. Um, you, you have to be looking at putting some kind of controls in place um, because then you're going to have just like people starving in the streets. Yeah, well, the only, the other thing that could, it could sell, I, I see a way it self-polices its way out of this in that, you know, Mount Gox blew up in, was it 13 or 12? Yeah, I think it might have been end of 13, end early of, 14. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, so Mount Gox blew up and after that, exchanges became a lot better at their technology and a lot right. better at their security practices. And now it's very, very rare that we see a, uh, an exchange rug pull. We're not, yeah. you know, it may not be over for now. We had, um, uh, what's the Canadian one called? Quadriga. Quadriga yeah. blow up. But like, generally speaking, tr exchanges are becoming more and more trusted. Yes, not your, keys, not, not, not your Bitcoin, take your Bitcoin off exchanges. Absolutely, yeah. you should. But, you know, Voyager destroyed their business. Celsius destroyed their business. BlockFi got close to the edge mm -hmm. with some of this. You've even had um, Genesis. I mean, Genesis, the talk is they've lost 500 to a billion somewhere in there. Oh, I haven't heard that yet. Yeah. Oh, wow. Correct on Genesis, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, essentially their entire balance sheet for the last few years. This, These, these are all your primary lenders out in the market, yep. right? I think who've you got left? Ledin, maybe one or two others more. If you're... If you're a survivor mm -hmm. or you're building yeah. a new business, you've got the lessons of the previous company. So maybe right. the borrowing lending money market just becomes more responsible. People aren't going to be doing $650 million uncollateralized loans. They might not even be doing do, like 30%, uh, sorry, 130% collateralized. Maybe out of this, we get a stronger borrowing and lending market. And because of that, there's just less money out there yeah. to be leveraged. Yeah. Um, I mean, that would be great. I think that lower leverage is, is generally good. Um, I will say, whether it's through self-regulation or government stepping in, one major pillar of all of this that we haven't talked about yet is venture capital lockups for token positions. And yes. that is one of the most egregious situations that's prevalent in crypto right now is that you can do what Mike Novogratz did. You can buy Luna for whatever a dollar per Luna and ride it all the way up to $68 and then sell it right before it crashes. And you're a genius venture capitalist, even though it was obviously a Ponzi scheme from the start. And that I think is, you know, morally, I find it unbelievably offensive. Um, but also just technically in, in a market sense, the, the incentives are broken. Um, you're, you're giving somebody like Novogratz um, basically an incentive to say, Do Kwan was a very compelling speaker and I thought that he could get a lot of people on side. And so I bought the token even though I knew it was a Ponzi because I believed that this guy was a good marketer. Um, and I'm not saying that's what Novo is actually saying out loud, yeah, but yeah. that is the implicit reality of what they and a few other people did. Um, and, uh, and, and that, to me, is unacceptable as a status quo. Um, I think that, you know, this is where maybe some self-regulation can come in because we need VC funds to say, okay, we'll take at least take a one-year lockup, for God's sake. Like, like, start setting some standards for the way things work um, because I think we really have to get it out there that if you're if you're a VC taking like a two or three month lockup, you're waving a flag that says I am going to dump on you, um, and and that has to stop. We don't have the exact amount on Genesis, but it's it's probably I'm still unwinding, but it says hundreds of millions. Yeah, I mean I'm I was told it was over half a billion. 
see if they're getting up to half a billion. I think maybe um, at the time that I wrote my piece, I was only aware that they had said hundreds, and I thought yeah, yeah. that maybe meant two or three. It's just too um, small a number at hundreds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking madness. Um, yeah, uh, so that's not great. No, that is not great. Um, no, I think that we've covered a, a lot. I mean, I, I guess um, the one thing that I would just hammer down that is difficult to really convey is. We're still at a stage where you have to personally engage with the individuals involved and, like, make a judgment about their character, too. And um, that's really tough. But, I mean, if you look sort of the, the, the sterling examples, right, are both Doquan and Mashinsky were – vicious when it came to responding to critics. And, and I don't mean vicious in, in a sense of being like effective or actually answering criticisms. I mean, engaging in personal attacks, mockery, deflection, all of these rhetorical strategies to do anything but answer the very real questions that confronted their operations. Um, and I mean, in, in some ways it informs the bigger question about regulation because I think there's people like me who my whole job is to look people in the eye and, and try and figure out who they really are. And not everybody is good at that. And so I think that there were obviously people who, um, you know, saw Do Kwan on Coindesk TV talking to Christine Lee and just like dismissing uh, the fact that he had gotten served at Mainnet and, and like saying the SEC doesn't matter to him and he doesn't care. And like that's an obvious red flag to somebody who is in the space. Um, or, you know, Mashinsky's various uh, just personal attacks on people who are raising obvious objections. And that has to be, you know, whatever kind of investor you are, even outside of crypto, the personal angle is always relevant and you can never take it for granted. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if there's really any way to, you know, it doesn't scale, right? No. Nope. Um, so so it's a problem. Well, listen, I'm going to share everything you've written in the show notes. Again, thank you. Uh, brilliant stuff. I haven't paid enough attention to your column and I will mm-hmm. now. Um, thank you. Well, I think I, 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 again, I don't really use Coindex too much because there's too much crypto on there. But like, mm. it's definitely something I need to be aware of now, even as a Bitcoiner, just making a show that that certain decisions or things people do can affect Bitcoiners as well, whether they like it or not. So I will be paying more of attention. And I hope we can do this again sometime. I'll give yeah, you a please. shout next time I'm in New York. Absolutely. This is fantastic. And, and if I can uh, plug do, anything a, you want. Yeah, do a bit of, of a plug. Um, so definitely, if you're in Peter's position and would like to be paying more attention to what we do at Coindesk, um, subscribe to The Node, which is our, uh, our newsletter for the analytical magazine side of it, which we call Layer 2. And I write a top for The Node every... Uh, twice a week, so Wednesdays and Fridays, uh, I have an essay out about some small topic. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm also on The Hash fairly frequently, which is the noon uh, show at Coindesk.tv where we just have kind of a fun conversation about um, everything under the sun, including, yeah, crypto. We're, um, yeah, we are a, we're, we're a, I would say, Bitcoin-centric publication nonetheless, uh, even though we cover everything. So maybe that's a comfortable point for some people to, to enter is, um, you know, we, I, I won't get too into the details, but as an organization, we are sort of biased towards Bitcoin. Yeah. I probably shouldn't say that, but, um, you know, we, 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 we're very Bitcoin friendly. Um, we're not an Ethereum publication or anything like that. So. Yeah. Well, this is a Bitcoin show, but it's definitely useful hearing about these yeah. things to help people understand. I appreciate you coming on and yeah, I look forward to doing this again sometime. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Honor to be here. Thank you. Okay, 
Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to reach out to me, please do get in touch. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to all messages, but you can also go and check out my Telegram group. There's a bunch of people in there always talking about Bitcoin. All right, I will see you all very, very soon.